Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Today we're pleased to present Turbocharge Your Path Towards Product Market Fit. I'm Jeanette DePatty from the Lean Startup Conference happening September, I'm sorry, November 16th through 19th in San Francisco. Visit leanstartup.co for more information. Our speakers today are Amy Jo Kim and Kirsten Cluthy, our editorial director, who will be moderating questions from the audience. Amy Jo Kim is a world-renowned social game designer, community architect, and startup coach. Her deep experience in early-stage innovation and collaborative game design includes work on Rock Band, The Sims, eBay, Netflix, Cover Fashion, Indiegogo, NewYorkTimes.com, and numerous startups. Her latest project is Getting to Alpha, the premier online coaching program for innovative teams who want to turbocharge their path to product market fit. Here's a few housekeeping notes. We'll take questions from the audience via the live chat. If you'd like to ask a question, please flag it with a cue followed by a colon. The speakers will answer questions in the second half of the webcast. There's no need to ask your questions twice. This is a one-hour program and the recording will be available a few days after the live webcast. Take it away, Kirsten. Thanks, Jeanette. Um, Amy Jo, welcome. I'm very excited to have you here today. I know it's going to be an awesome presentation. Um, and it's a little preview of what you're going to be talking about at the conference. So thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Um, before we get into it, I do just want to remind, sort of reiterate what Jeanette said, which is to please, for the audience, please post your questions as you think of them. Um, and we'll be, we'll be going through them at the end of the presentation. Um, so let's get started. Let's, let's get into the presentation. When you're All ready. right. I will just set that up on my end. Here we go. Are you seeing it? Yes, we've got it. Looks Great. good. Great. All right, let's get right into it. Welcome, everyone. I'm so glad you're here. Today I'm going to show you five proven and powerful design hacks that can skyrocket your early product design and turbocharge your MVP process. Do you and your team struggle to accelerate the pace of your early design and development process? Is it challenging to filter out all the feedback coming at you from all sides and identify the right handful of people to listen to? Do you struggle to turn your engaging, expansive product vision into a simple and stripped down MVP? In the next 20 minutes, I'm going to share actionable techniques for creating a better product in less time. These techniques have been road tested with numerous clients, many of whom have achieved massive results. Now let's find out what they can do for you. First, let's make sure you're in the right place. These hacks are for leaders and teams who want big time results and are ready to put in the focus and effort to get there. If you're an innovator or an entrepreneur and you've got a hot idea and burning desire to translate that idea into a highly engaging product and give yourself the best shot at mass market success while speeding up your early design process, you're in the right place. That said, this approach is not for everyone. 
if what you're looking for is easy answers to tough questions, silver bullets that don't require much work, manipulative game mechanics for shaping short-term behavior, or a Skinner box approach to engagement, I'll explain more about that in a moment. You're not going to find that here. I'm Amy Jo Kim, social game designer, entrepreneur, and startup coach. Early product design is my specialty. I've helped dozens of teams bring their innovative ideas to life. I worked on genre-defining hits, including Rock Band, The Sims, Covet Fashion, Ultima Online, eBay, and Happify. I also helped innovative companies like Disney, Netflix, Electronic Arts, and The New York Times design key products and services. After working with so many successful teams and also quite a few less successful ones, I've learned that the best teams share certain habits and incorporating those habits into your culture can dramatically increase your odds of success. Because let's face it, early product development is hard. It's really hard. I've done it many times. It's always a challenge. It is fun and exciting. But it's really tough to know how to test your idea quickly and how to figure out that winning recipe for a hit game or product. There aren't any simple answers. I've learned, however, that if you have access to the right design shortcuts, this process can go much faster and easier. How would you like to make six months of progress in six weeks? By leveraging smart shortcuts and time-saving design hacks, that's exactly what my clients have been able to accomplish. Let me show you how two successful products came to life in the early days. Covet Fashion, a mobile cooperative game, and Happify, a personal healthcare app. Covet Fashion is a hit game where you dress up in the latest designer fashions and then you can buy those clothes in real life. It was created by Crowdstar, a mobile game studio. They came to me with an exciting idea for a cooperative game based on real-world clothing trends. The team needed to reach beyond their core audience and figure out how to find and delight non-gamer fashionistas. So we clarified their strategy, outlined their design and modernization constraints, and quickly built an early adopter funnel to connect with and learn from this aspirational audience. We set up regular playtesting sessions very early in development uncomfortably early for some team members and we use that feedback to laser focus our efforts and create a stripped down alpha build of the game. Connecting with the right early adopters helped the team quickly test and refine their key assumptions and ship a product that delighted their aspirational audience. Today, three years later, Covet Fashion is a highly profitable evergreen hit with thousands of happy customers. And it all started by making six months of progress in six weeks and laser focusing our efforts. Now let's look at Happify, an innovative digital health service. They used a, smart, a few smart design hacks to supercharge their MVP process and find their early audience. Happify was the brainchild of two brilliant entrepreneurs from the gaming industry. They came to me with an exciting, innovative idea for a digital happiness service based on their own transformative experience with a few science-based happiness exercises. 
They needed to quickly flesh out and test their risky idea, find their early market, and most importantly, prove their business model. We clarified their product vision and their revenue model, identified and interviewed early adopters, prototyped and tested their core product ideas, and then quickly iterated the product based on early feedback. We learned that our early customers wanted something that felt like Pinterest, but with the motivational pull of a game. Using these insights, we built a product that delighted and hooked these early customers, and in doing so, carved out a new niche in health services. Happify is now the market leader in digital happiness, with thousands of paying subscribers who are getting happier every day. So can you imagine getting these kinds of results on your project? What if you could dramatically accelerate your development and discover early if you're pursuing the right ideas? What if you could talk to exactly the right customers and use those conversations to focus on the right issues? What if you could turn those customer insights into a simple yet compelling MVP with just enough fidelity to test your assumptions? And what if you could do all of that in a few weeks? You and your team would save time and money and avoid a lot of wasted effort. Let me show you how. Remember those patterns of success I talked about earlier? Here are five design hacks that put those patterns into practice. Let's dive in. The first key to success is to design and run small high learning experiments. That is the best way to minimize time through the build, measure, learn cycle and maximize your odds of success. The most striking pattern shared by all the successful innovators I've worked with, particularly the ones building hit games, was a willingness to ask the hard important questions up front and then seek the answers experimentally. In gaming, we often call this pre-production. The Happify team, for example, knew firsthand the power of science-based happiness exercises. What they didn't know was whether people would pay for these exercises within a convenient and game-like service. That was the hard important question they needed to answer before moving on. To create their breakthrough hit, the Covet Fashion team knew that they needed to reach a broader, more aspirational audience of fashion-loving women. So they focused on finding these people and testing their idea with this new audience before plunging full-time into game development and green-lighting the production of the project. Successful innovators start with tinkering and disciplined small experiments. To streamline this process, we've developed a tool called the MVP Canvas that helps our clients make smart strategic design decisions about how to focus and pursue their MVP. I will be giving a seminar, a workshop on how to use the MVP Canvas to accelerate your project at the Lean Startup Conference. I'm very excited about it. The output of this tool is a prioritized list of assumptions, those hard important questions to test up front. So before you polish anything, make sure you're building the right thing and test your highest risk assumptions. The next design hack is about finding and leveraging the right early adopters for testing. These are the people who need and want what you're dreaming up, who get the most value from it first. After working with dozens of teams, I've come to see that finding and leveraging the right early adopters can make or break your success. Have you ever heard of Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore? 
This influential book explored the difficulty of marketing innovative products to a mass market, aka crossing the chasm, and popularized the term early adopter, meaning people who'd be willing to make a personal sacrifice to get their hands on the thing you're building. They want it so bad. If you want to innovate successfully, you need to find and delight a few passionate early adopters first before you scale and grow. And it turns out this is easier said than done. That's where the early adopter funnel comes in. Using techniques like targeted screeners, speed interviews, and lightweight MVP testing, you can quickly identify and filter a handful of people who are vetted early adopters for the specific thing you're creating. If you take the time to do that, you get enormous leverage for months afterwards. This filtering process can take a while, so over the years, I've found a bunch of shortcuts for speeding things up because we're all in a hurry. Here's one. If you ask people just a few revealing questions that are carefully chosen to surface needs and habits of true early adopters, you can learn a lot in a short period of time. Let's see this in action and look at how the Covet Fashion team created their early adopter funnel. Using a combination of Craigslist ads and emails to their existing player base, the team recruited a few dozen fashion-obsessed young women, both gamers and non-gamers, so that we could see the difference. We screened potential early adopters remotely with phone and Skype, and we invited the best interview subjects into paid testing sessions, both in the office and remotely. Within a few weeks, we'd identified both a handful of vetted early adopters and some crucial early insights about their habits and needs. Three key patterns emerged from these early sessions that shaped how we approached our MVP. The fashion browser, the co-creator, and the armchair stylist. We'll delve deeper into those in a moment, but I want you to see how taking the time to build an early adopter funnel gives you both great test subjects and valuable focusing early product insights. Because after all, the goal of product research is to get insights that impact your design decisions. This leads us into the third design hack, a technique I call customer habit stories. These stories can quickly turn your research results into actionable design decisions and help you focus on that crucial habit building phase of your product experience. It's not the whole experience, but it's the place you should start. If you're looking for shortcuts to customer engagement, the smartest thing you can do is piggyback your experience onto an existing habit while also solving a problem or meeting an unmet need that goes along with that habit. It all starts by asking the right questions and then paying close attention when people tell you about their existing habits relevant to what you're building. Once you've identified relevant habits, look closer, dig deeper, See if there's an unmet need associated with it, some dissatisfaction with the current state of affairs. That's where opportunity lies. Pay close attention to cues, emotions, and reminders that drive customers into that habit. Look for situational triggers, meaning transitions, rituals, events that structure someone's daily life and lead them either into or out of the habitual behavior you're trying to piggyback on. That is going to be relevant as you design your core loop. Now comes the punchline. You'll craft a habit story or habit-based job story that captures these observations and insights. These stories 
will help you wring the most actionable product insights from your interviews and testing sessions. A well-crafted habit story contains the keys to driving product adoption and engagement. Let's bring this to life by drilling down on those research results I just mentioned from Covet Fashion. One key habit we uncovered that was shared by many people, not just many people had like all of these patterns, but the most broad one was what we called the fashion browser. This is someone, a fashionista, someone who loves clothes, who likes to escape into vogue after a long day at work and wants a more compelling experience. Here's an actual quote from a test subject summarizing this point of view. And here's how we crafted a habit story from that result. First, we identified the motivational trigger, the urge that she's seeking to fulfill. Next, we summed up the activity that she's seeking out in general terms so we could think creatively about how to translate that activity into our application. Finally, we articulated the outcome she's looking for, focusing not on specific details, but on her personal goals and the emotional state that she's seeking. So that's how you build a design-ready habit story to help you with your product MVP. Now once you've done this, you need to still translate that into your product design. That's where skill building loop core loops come in. A core loop is a gaming concept that describes the interlocking activities, progress markers, feedback systems and rewards a player experiences during a session. As game designer Dan Cook says, building and learning are an essential part of what makes games compelling and fun. This powerful concept is at the heart of game design, but it can also be applied much more broadly to all kinds of game-like experiences. So what exactly is a skill building core loop? How does that come into play when you're validating your product ideas? First, be careful not to fall into the common trap of testing your marketing message and thinking you validated your idea. A fake landing page can help you shape your message and test demand for that message, but it has nothing to do with testing or shaping or iterating your core product experience. An operant conditioning loop, like the habit loop from the Power of Habit book shown here, gets you closer to a core loop because it's based on feedback and rewards. What's missing, though, is the crucial notion of skill building or personal empowerment. That is the limitation of Skinner boxes and operant conditioning loops. That type of approach can shape short-term behavior, but it will never lead you to customer delight or true long-term engagement. For that, you need skill building. You need some sort of path to mastery. People enjoy getting better at something they care about. It's the process of learning and mastery and of somehow becoming more awesome that's deeply and intrinsically motivating. So to create a robust core loop, you need to combine engaging activities with the skill building power of games. Let's take a look at the Covet Fashion core loop and connect the dots between this design and our research-based habit story we just generated. The heart of any core loop is one or more repeating, repeatable engaging activities. In games, there's usually an activity chain, but you can start with a simple activity when you're building something simpler. This activity is triggered by some internal urge or need. For covet fashion, 
The urge, as we saw, is to escape into an immersive world of beautiful aspirational clothes. And the engaging activity that we came up with is browsing a personalized style feed filled with gorgeous designer fashions. This taps into the habits and desires of the fashion browser, that key pattern from our research. To promote learning and mastery, you then punctuate your engaging activities with feedback and meaningful progression. Feedback comes before progress for any kind of progress markers. Feedback is core to skill building. Think about coaching. Feedback tells you if you're on the right track. Like many games, Covet Fashion drives engagement with several interlocking progression and feedback systems. The simplest one is rating and commenting on other players' outfits right from the style feed. This very lightweight action provides crowdsourced feedback to all the other players about their fashion choices and engages the armchair stylist, another key research pattern, the type of person who loves telling other people how to dress. Finally, you close the loop by giving players compelling and meaningful reasons to return and cues to remind them. There's many ways to drive investment. Collecting, earning, spending, and expressing your personal style or taste. Covet Fashion uses these all to drive investment. Here's how it works. By rating each other's outfits, that lightweight action, players can earn virtual currency, which they then use to purchase virtual designer clothes, which they then use to dress up for glamorous aspirational events, which they then submit, and others can rate their outfits and continue the cycle. Once you start engaging like this and expressing your personal style and getting people's feedback on it, checking your stats becomes an irresistible trigger. That's a great place to be if you're a product designer. Although it's much simpler, Twitter's core loop has the same basic dynamics. What elevates this above a simple Skinner box is that there's something to get better at, writing compelling tweets and building a following. And the system gives you skill building feedback, simple though it is, that helps you improve. It starts with an urge for a quick break or a hit of social news or personal sharing. As you engage and share, you get notifications and your basic stats go up, which leads to investment as you collect faves, retweets, and followers and learn how to write engaging content in 140 characters. Over time, the feedback systems of Twitter have grown to be more sophisticated and thus more useful for skill building. But it's very similar in that once you engage deeply, Checking your stats becomes this irresistible trigger, makes it harder to walk away. That's the core of investment. Now, keep in mind, breakthrough innovations spend a lot of time up front tuning and getting this core experience just right. I was on the original design team for Rock Band. Here's our basic core loop. Notice that the trigger is social. We knew right from the start this was a party game played in groups. We spent at least six months early on, prototyping and testing this basic core loop with spit and bailing wire instruments and the simplest interfaces. We didn't add any features or polish until the feel of it truly rocked. So as you go to build your core loop, think about the skill your customer is building, what they're getting better at, and design your experience to support that journey. Finally, I want to share with you one of the simplest but most powerful design hacks I've discovered. If you want to supercharge your efforts, You've got to get your ideas in front of the right early adopters and get them into an iterative feedback loop. How do you actually do this in practice? This can easily fall off the map. The best teams I've seen make this happen by setting up lightweight weekly playtesting sessions right from the start, even before they've built a thing. This simple habit 
will dramatically speed up your ability to find and leverage your early customers even before you've built anything. And it will help you source and test your ideas quickly and avoid those expensive cul-de-sacs all us product designers regret. And when you're struggling to turn your compelling vision into a stripped-down MVP, playtesting low-fidelity concepts with early adopters gives you targeted high-value feedback on what's important and what you should leave out. For a great example of seeing how this works in action, let me tell you about Play, a fast-growing digital toy rental service. The team wanted to connect with and leverage their rapidly expanding member base by building a digital community. They had a great business case, but they had no idea if their members actually wanted to participate. So we clarified their strategy and put some metrics behind their business goals. We found the right early adopters to interview and uncovered relevant needs, habits, and desires around community and sharing. Guess what? We learned that the Play customers had no desire to participate in digital community, but they did want educational family-friendly videos to extend the value of their toy rentals for their kids. So with this insight, Play decided to pivot and launch a YouTube channel as their MVP, which was a big success. The company recently raised their Series B, and they're now leveraging these early insights by building video sharing into their core product. So there you have it. Five design hacks that can supercharge your MVP. If you're already familiar with some of these, fantastic. If some of them are new to you, I hope you go try them and see what they can do for you and your team. Each of them is useful in isolation, but what I've seen is that it's when you put them together into an integrated program that you see the massive acceleration in your path to product market fit and that you are able to quickly and effectively find those right early customers and then run low fidelity, high learning play tests to test and iterate your assumptions and ideas, which gets you to the point where you can design a simple, compelling MVP because you have the info you need to do that. So if you're in the early stages of designing your product or game or designing an extension to your existing product for a larger audience and you want to dramatically accelerate that, that's our sweet spot. We would love to help you out. We start by articulating and prioritizing your key assumptions, figuring out how to test those assumptions quickly and effectively. We then find and delight the right early adopters for your particular offering, not general early adopters, very specific early adopters, using shortcuts and templates that dramatically speed up this crucial step and get you to the point where you can use game design techniques and shortcuts to help test and create a simple yet compelling MVP. If this sounds like what you need, let's talk. We'll spend a few minutes on the phone reviewing your project, getting clear on what you're doing, give you some initial feedback on your situation, answer your questions, and decide if our programs are right for you. All of the programs that we offer can run completely online. They work great for distributed teams as well as co-located teams. We've developed recently some affordable group programs for cost-conscious entrepreneurs worldwide, and we also have supercharged custom programs for more mature companies who want to innovate faster and smarter. So if you're ready to make six months of progress in six weeks, we want to make that happen for you. Head over to gettingtoalpha.com. You can find some free templates to download, including the MVP Canvas I talked about here, and I'd love for you to just try them out today with your team. You can also set up a free introductory session 
to talk to me on the phone and get some feedback and coaching. The slots are limited, so do sign up soon. I look forward to connecting with you, and whether or not we ever work together, I truly hope that you're inspired to take these ideas, try them out, and accelerate your progress. I wish you a lot of success. Happy hacking. Well, thank you, Amy Jo. That um, was fantastic. We have a couple of questions that I'd love to get to, um, and I will just go through them. Um, so one of the first questions that came up was uh, whether this process works equally as well for hardware versus software development. So is, the, is there a difference between the type of product that you're working on? Um, does it change the time that you put into it or the time it takes to actually um, figure out these these Yes, that is a great question. That is a great question. I've had a number of hardware clients. So there is a difference and what I've done is created a system that's micro-chunked and micro-chunked and highly remixable for finding and leveraging and delighting the right early adopters. That part is absolutely the same for hardware for software, for a free-to-play game, for a subscription service, for an educational software platform. That part of the process is um, one large chunk with a lot of smaller chunks that are activities and insights and um, how-to's. to, how -tos. That's part of my materials. What I found that's different about hardware is what you mean by a prototype and what you can learn before you've built anything changes depending on what you're doing. So um, I think hardware startups struggle a lot to figure out when and how to test and the difference between um, early, early um, majority and early adopters. So it's very, very easy if you remember back to that crossing the chasm slide. It's very easy to mistake early majority and early adopters. And I can give you, let me give you a recipe for telling the difference. Early majority are people that are really interested in what you're doing. They love what you're doing. They think it sounds great. But when it comes down to them actually investing time and money, they want a little bit for a lot or they're not quite ready yet. They don't need it. Early adopters need it. It solves a problem. It meets a need. It tickles something that needs tickling. They need it. So in gaming, super fans are often early adopters, like Will Wright and Richard Garriott, um, the folks at Harmonix. They all have cultivated super fans over the years who are real early adopters and are vetted for what they're building. If you're starting out, there's techniques, as I mentioned, like you know, very targeted screeners and speed interviews that can help you find early adopters. But what I found with I, um, the people that really, really need the value prop, and so you said, well, we haven't built it yet. How can we test the value prop? And there's a lot of ways to test it, including testing it on your competitors' products. There's many, many ways before you've built anything to test your value prop on early adopters. And I find with hardware startups, they're getting a lot of pressure to scale quickly. And met, some of them really know who their early adopters are. Some of the companies I'm advising, they have you know, teenage, lonely teenage girls who need to feel more connected in high school. That's their early adopter, and they're rocking it. But many hardware startups, like they'll say their early adopter is, 
um, uh, women who are pregnant and working, you know, working women who are also pregnant, they all need it. That's far too broad. You have to find this subgroup, this micro vertical of um, people that really are, you know, cutting edge and need your product. If you can't find that early, you will have much more trouble scaling and reaching the early, early majority. So that's a long way of saying the process absolutely works for hardware. The tricky part is one, really understanding how important, if you're innovating, this step is, not to skip over the step, and two, understanding the difference between testing your concept and, okay, we really know we're hitting a neural market need and we're ready to scale. And I think hardware accelerators and startups are right in the middle of figuring all of that out. Yep. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of figuring that out, too. That's great. Well, it's still very useful, super information. Um, Two questions related to the early adopters. The first one is, and this is sort of a quick one, um, is social media a good way also to sort of look for early adopters in, in terms of identifying who those people might be? Um, you mentioned Craigslist and then, of course, email lists from um, Covet Fashion, but is that one place where you can go to sort of try to find people that might be interested? Yes, but don't use your own contacts. So the key thing about when you set out to identify the right handful of early adopters to test your, your core value prop and concept. Make sure it's not friends and family. There's a place for friends and family in your alpha testing and your testing. But make sure the people you find don't love you and support you and want you to succeed. They will give you very skewed feedback. I, I know this from painful experience. Um, so one, and you also, if social media is a good channel for you, you can use it. But part of what I do when I work with people is we do, you know, a lot of upfront strategic analysis, quick and dirty, but and saying who do we think they are, and then there's different channels. And what you want to do is, is you want to calibrate a few channels, see what comes back, and then double down on the channels that are bringing you the right early adopters. It might be direct email, it might be social media. In that case, do friends of friends. Ask your friends to to share your question that you're looking for with their friends, but don't share it directly with people you're connected to on social media because they're too invested in your success. Right. So, um, but then Craigslist, sometimes, some people do Facebook ads, some people have done Twitter ads, some people have taken out banner ads on very targeted websites. There's a lot of different ways. And part of what's important is if you have a crisp uh, hypothesis about who you think your early adopters are, or maybe three different hypotheses that are very narrow, and you're not sure which one, you can then use those that cha channel calibration and those early speed interviews to actually get clear on which of those is the most ripe um, channel for testing. So identifying early adopters is high leverage, and it's very iterative. So I'd say, come if you think social media might be good, try that, try a few others, Craft your outreach message, which usually goes to a, um, a, a targeted screener, which is very different than a general survey. And um, try a few different channels, and then notice the quality of what comes back. It's better to get a few high-quality leads than a whole bunch of stuff, say from Facebook ads, none of whom are what you're looking for. Yep, fantastic. Um, and then the second question is, what is the right number of early adopters, one, to see if your product is headed in the right direction? I understand that number might be different for each product, but just looking for examples, for example, of how many users reached one in X number of months. 
So it's a, yeah, so it changes during the stage. When you're at the earliest stage, as a rule of thumb, try to find five to ten. Start small, and try to and learn use it as a way to test your assumptions and hypotheses about who your early adopters are. Um, the other thing that I find works really really well is uh, my program is called Getting to Alpha because one of the strategic exercises we do at the beginning and end of the program, we bookend the program with it, is say, imagine you're going to run an alpha test of 25 to 50 people with a very, very early version of your product. Very, very early. Ugly. An early, ugly version. Imagine you're going to run an alpha test to really test the core product after you've gotten some early feedback. What is that alpha test going to look like? How many people? What do they have in common? And then I have you basically pretend you're going to run it, fill it out, and work backwards from there. So the other thing is 25 to 50. Because people get excited and say, well, it could be 5,000. Yeah, start with five. Right. And really make sure you learn from those five. And then grow to 20. And then some people, you know, and it depends on what you're doing. Right now I've got a client who's running already running a beta. They're in the middle of their beta. And they're using my program to refine and accelerate their go-to-market, to, to extract the most learning from their beta program and then refine it. So who's their next wave is the question. So they've got their early adopters, but what we're going to do is say, okay, from the beta, what did we learn and how are we going to use that to shape our go-to-market? So it, it changes at the phase you're at, but the process is still the same. What even before you've built anything, see if you can find five people using you know various techniques, whatever you want, that really sound like they need what you're building, and then test your competitors' products and watch that, or make some really really lightweight, super early mock-ups, ugly mock-ups, and talk them through it and see what they say. You just the acceleration you get if you do that early is dramatic, but it's emotionally difficult. But if you really want to get there faster, it's this. I just time and again, it gets you. It gets you to product market fit faster. Mm -hmm. um, another question: Does paying your testers have an impact on the outcome? Absolutely. So, um, especially when you're running, um, and and it doesn't. Always, it's not always necessary. So, by paying your testers. Um, you are communicating a couple of things. One, you will save yourself a lot of time because the rate of people who show up if they're paid is higher than the rate of people who don't for a test. Simple as that. So one, you'll save yourself a lot of time if you care about that. Two, you will um, communicate to your testers that you're serious and that you have no intention of wasting their time and that you are doing something that is worth paying them for their feedback. Um, what you also need to do is screen out professional test subjects who troll Craigslist and TaskRabbit and try and make themselves look like whatever will get them into a paid test. And I have a method. It's a three-step filtering process. When you saw that early adopter funnel, part of that is specific questions in the early interviews that screen um, people that are doing it for the money. So yes, you want to pay your testers. You don't have to pay hundreds of people, but you should pay the first five or ten for sure. You don't have to even pay them a lot, but um, 
if you do that, what you do is you recruit for paid testing, and then you speed interview as screening for the paid testing, and then when you get to the paid testing, you've got the right people. So what I've done is, I used to do more unpaid testing, and I've learned, do paid testing, but do a bunch of screening beforehand, and then you get the right people. That's great. Um, so now there's a question that it sort of speaks to, it sort of asks about um, bringing this process into an organization that might not be so used to working in this way because in, on one hand it's a process that is supposed to move you forward faster but also requires a lot of deep thought around what you're doing and you really need to be paying attention. Um, so the question is the word shortcuts or hacks might scare traditional organizations. So in your experience, how do you get around that when you work with sort of older or more traditional or enterprise organizations that are not used to working this way? That's such a great question. So the most successful engagements I've had with larger organizations is by engaging with their internal innovation team um, such that that's become one of my key targets. And I recently did that with a larger educational gaming company. And I'd been talking to them for six months. They love what I'm doing, and they're like, yeah, we know a lot of that, and it's really interesting. Then their innovation team was creating their next generation product, and they were struggling to hit a deadline, and they were nervous, and they had a fire lit under their butt by the CEO, and they were didn't quite see how they could meet their deadline. So they came to me and said, can you do a custom version of your thing specifically to help us meet this deadline? We did it. It was hugely successful. They are now taking what we did together and spreading it group by group to the rest of the organization. And so that's one example, which is start with a small win. And start. what I find is that people that I've learned to screen out the people that are interested, but not uh, they don't have a need. And it's, you know, it's good product design. People that are interested and don't have a need will absorb the, you know, there's a ton of great info there, but if they don't change their habits and rituals and processes, they won't get the acceleration. Um, big organizations that are scared by the idea of a shortcut are probably not my target market because they are living in the past. Um, or they need a level of overhead and thoroughness that's going to hamper them from innovating effectively. And in that case, nothing I do is going to make a difference. Is I mean, that kind might sound kind of harsh, but I'd say if you are in a big organization and you think, oh my God, I would love to get this into my organization, how would I do that? in a way that doesn't waste anybody's money or time. Do it on a project basis. Find a project that really needs to accelerate the early design process and make something more compelling and in less time and get everybody focused and treat it as an experiment and say, we want to do an experiment. We want to try this and we want to reflect on the results and see where it took us. And if the results were good, we would like to then have another team have the opportunity to speed it up. So I think that's the most realistic way of actually getting results that I've seen. And I've had three companies that did that successfully, and I've had some companies that didn't do it that way and were less successful. Yeah. 
that's, that makes a lot of sense. It almost it really requires you to sort of think carefully about where you work and who you're working with and who the key stakeholders are. Um, that small you're wins, about. small wins with a real need. Yeah. Look for um, a, look for a real need that can be you know and and treat it as an experiment. Um, another question about early adopters. Um, any thoughts on number of early adopters for social apps that need a minimum number of people for it to be interesting? So you can find early adopters and test the idea before you've built the app. And you can test your competitors' products. Um, when you're actually building out the app, that's where you get into alpha, closed beta, open beta ship with a social product. So if you want to think about what your alpha should be, if you're building a social app, a really smart strategy to get the critical mass, so you can test the core concept, et cetera, but then at some point you have to get a group of people uh, using it. So a really smart strategy is to find an existing group of people that already know something about each other and know each other in at least some light way and share a need, share some need, that your social app solves better than anything out there. So for example, there was a message board years ago called The Well, it still exists, but it was one of the early um, social communities. And it really struggled to take off until the Grateful Dead fans who needed to do ride sharing to shows found it. And then it became a ride sharing Grateful Dead board for a while, right? Like during its really early days. Because a real need had showed up, a real group with a real need. And then it grew and it became other things. It did, it did keep that vibe in a lot of ways of the early group. I've seen the same thing with every MMO or multiplayer game I've ever worked on. You know, they have that same need. How do you build up the critical mass that makes an MMO interesting? And a lot of it is find an existing group that has something in common that would love to really try out your thing, that are true early adopters for your thing. And then see if you can bring them on en masse. Great. Excellent. Um, okay, so one more sort of quick, uh, question that I'm not sure I'm not sure where it's supposed to go, and then I, I just want to wrap it up. Um, so somebody asked if you've worked with Mechanical Turk. If, if I um, I've not worked there, I have clients of mine have used Mechanical Turk for pulling in test subjects, potential test subjects, and they've not had a good experience with it. So what's is there any more about the question? No, that's that's the question. I just thought I would throw that in just to just to just to wrap it up. Yeah, see. Mechanical Turk is a really interesting system, the way it works. What my clients have found in general, it doesn't mean it couldn't work for the right project with a good match to who their early adopters are. My clients so far who have recruited through TaskRabbit and Mechanical Turk had a hard time finding people that weren't spinning to try and get the money. Uh, we didn't find great early adopters there, but it also just it might be a side effect of who I've worked with. Yeah, that's good insight though. I mean, that, I think that's useful um, for the person that asked the question. Um, okay, so to wrap it up, what what else are you working on, and where can people find you if in, between now and November when you're going to be at the conference? Great. So I am working on the Getting to Alpha group program. We are launching a revamped fall 2015 program, which is open to startup teams and entrepreneurial teams worldwide, launching on October 5th. If you go to gettingtoalpha.com with a 2, G-E-T-T-I-N-G, 2, alpha, 
You can learn all about that. I'm also working on some longer-term projects with private clients involving cooperative gaming, which is my specialty. And I think there is a wave of cooperative software, both in gaming and in apps, where people win together rather than competing head-to-head. -head. Um, a lot of my recent clients have been in that space. So I am developing um, some games with some very large entertainment companies I can't talk about, but I'll let you know when they're out. And then thirdly, I am working on a book that uh, sums up this point of view and is going to be available next year. The working title right now is Elevate, How Game Designers Create a Path to Mastery. Awesome. One more question came in, so I just am going to ask it just because we've got a few minutes. Um, what is the average investment cost of doing these kinds of experiments, understanding that it depends on products or sectors, if you can even respond to that? So you can do these experiments very cheaply. And part of why I share these design hacks and why I offer free downloads on my website is if you're really, really motivated, you and a team of two or three people can put these things together for you know and spend a few hundred bucks on research. But you'll need a designer and you know project manager and but a small startup team who's motivated can can these hacks are you know accessible and cheap. Uh, I coach people on how to do it, which definitely helps. And those programs start at five thousand dollars for a team and three thousand dollars for an individual. Uh, I don't usually accept individuals, but occasionally an individual convinces me that they can actually do it. So, and then my uh, custom programs are more, but I, that's uh, much lower than the price point I use to work with clients one-on-one. -on -one. And I'm doing this specifically because I'm very passionate about helping people innovate faster and smarter and connecting with brilliant entrepreneurs and really accelerating their progress and saving them a lot of heartache and wasted time. I find that um, very much my calling. So in terms of doing it yourself, you know, 500 bucks maybe and a bunch of smart people, it's, I've had student teams do amazing work. Uh, doing it with me, a few thousand dollars at the, at the lower end. Wow. It's amazing. Incredible information. You make it sound easy <laughs> in a way. It's, it's actually so really that, hard and that's yeah. why, I'll be honest with you, a big part of why I invented this program and this system is that I needed it because on earlier projects, including you know, original games that Shuffle Brain designed and shipped. We were in too much of a hurry and we skipped some of these steps and we screwed up. Like I really wish I had I wish I had, had this system ten years ago. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well so I'm I'm happy to share it and I'm so excited about the conference. I just want to say you're doing such a service to entrepreneurs worldwide in big companies and medium sized companies and in startups. I'm thrilled to be part of that educational process and um, really looking forward to meeting people and helping accelerate their efforts right there at the conference. Awesome. Well, it, it's so great that you're going to join us. And uh, I just want to remind people that you're doing a workshop on Monday, and then you'll also be doing one of the plenary keynotes. So they'll have two chances to, to hear from you at the conference, which is great. Truly valuable. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay. And thanks, everybody, for joining us today. I'm handing it back to you, Jeanette. Thanks to everybody. This wraps up our show. Please join us again for the next webcast on September 24th. In the meantime, visit leanstartup.co for more information on the Lean Startup Conference, November 16th through 19th in San Francisco. Have a great day.